This is the land of the free. Stories of life and liberty in a time of war. Hi, this is Joe Lindsley, American in Kyiv, with our Land of the Free podcast produced by Ukrainska Pravda, Ukrainian Truth, independent media here in Ukraine. And uh, I represent our team from Ukrainian Freedom News. And today uh, I'm honored to speak with a great American in Ukraine, uh, Deborah Fairlam. Deborah has lived in Kyiv for more than 10 years uh, because, uh, and I, I learned this from our conversations ever since we met in 2018, uh, but Deborah is one of the most passionate uh, believers in Ukrainian freedom, uh, the Ukrainian spirit of entrepreneurship and uh, problem solving. And so I'm very honored to have this conversation with Deborah. Deborah, you and I, we met in 2018. We did. The first time I came to Kiev, I was traveling around the world a bit aimlessly, and then I found such purpose here. And you had worked uh, on Wall Street uh, for, for years in, in New York City, uh, and then you wanted to get away, and, and, and you wanted something more purposeful and meaningful, and, uh, and we, we'll get into that discussion, but you came to, you went to Georgia, uh, the nation of Georgia across the Black Sea, and then you came to Ukraine, and you made this your home. Uh, you raised your daughter here, and uh, so this is what we want to talk about: is why you were so inspired by Ukraine, and 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 you're actually so inspired that you've created uh, a new venture capital uh, effort, uh, Green Green Flag Ventures, That's right. uh, to bring investments to Ukraine even now, not waiting for the day of victory over the Russian invaders, but even now in this moment. Uh, to bring investments here. Yeah. Uh, so, Deborah, welcome. Thank you. It is fantastic to be here. I'm really looking forward to this. And thanks to everybody who is able to make this possible. This is spectacular. Well, and so we, you know, we have so many stories we can talk about. And we, <laughs> yeah. we, we caught up the other day and we're saying, well, we got to share, share these ideas uh, on the podcast, yeah. Land of the Free. And uh, we can talk about back in 2018 uh, when we met and, and how, I mean, you, you, you were a mentor to me and showing me the Ukrainian spirit. Uh, when I just, I came here sort of on a whim for a couple of weeks and, and uh, you were one of the key voices to say, hey, pay attention to this country, uh, the spirit of freedom here, the spirit of entrepreneurship. But we were just recalling the conversation the, was it the day or day or two before the full-scale invasion? No, it was that night. It was February 24th. It was probably at about 2 a.m. in Kiev. I, I was in the Netherlands at that point, and it was a, it was just at midnight my time, that because conversation. It was that at, night. At the time, you you were working as a contractor for USAID. I was Yeah, I was yeah. working uh, for one of the projects that are USAID-funded projects. And this is the United States Agency for International Development. Exactly. And American employees and contractors and officials were required to leave the country. Yeah, when the State uh, Department issued the evacuation order that applied to uh, everybody who's working either in the embassy, specifically within USAID, and the contractors are implementers as well. So, yeah, we had been required to leave at that and point. We'll, we'll talk a bit later about how painful it was for you to, to, yeah. to leave. And I'd made the decision to stay here. And I yeah. had just that night uh, been at the jazz club in Lviv, uh, and uh, I was I was I was talking with the son of Ella Fitzgerald. It was a surreal <laughs> night because uh, he he lived in Ukraine because yeah. he, he found, found it to be a very free place. And I had been saying on American media the preceding several weeks that what well, everyone else was saying Ukraine's going to fall in three days. And I said this is not going to happen. Everything I've seen about this country 
uh, testifies to its resilience. Yeah. But you reminded me of this conversation we had. Yeah, it is something. It is sort of one of the things of all of the things, you know, over the last almost two years that have stuck out. That one actually really is sort of cemented in my brain because, you know, it, it, it's so hard to be here and to understand, you know, so much about Ukraine that people on the outside don't see. But one of the things that you could see was that they were not, you know, they were not going to give up. And so everybody, the news, everything on the on, on the outside is it's, you know, it's not going to be good and all of these things. And you kept going out and saying, no, the Ukrainians are going to stand. They're going to fight. And you, you have always been much more publicly, you know, out in the public and the media than I have. Um, and I really felt like yours was an incredibly important voice at that time. And you were absolutely speaking against this mass current of what everybody's predictions were going to be. But truthfully, I really firmly believed in what you firmly believed in that, no, this, they were going to fight and this was not going to be what everybody thought. But remind me of that phone call. Was I, was I a bit uh, <laughs> Oh my negative? God, you were despondent at that point. You're like, they all think I'm crazy. I am this lone voice out, out here, you know, talking to, to people about the fact that, that, you know, Ukraine is, is going to stand and that they're going to fight. And, you know, people are calling me crazy. I'm like, no, it's really important what you're saying. You have to keep saying it. Even when people are calling you crazy, if you are speaking the truth, you have to always just keep speaking the truth. And I think that that was the thing that you, you know, it, it, it seemed to like click with you and you're like, okay, <laughs> we'll keep doing it. Well, and then that was the key timing because only an hour or so later, yeah. two hours later, uh, yeah. the Russians began, began yeah. to attack yeah. to hit Kiev and Kharkiv and so many other places. And uh, you, you for, for, for many months, really most of that first year. I was out all that first year. I, there was a small window that I had come back um, last October because actually when, uh, when the everybody out order came, I was actually outside of Ukraine. I had gone back to the U.S. on a very quick holiday. And um, so I was not able to come back in at that point, but my dog was still here. And so I, uh, it, 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 that was a really long eight months for me in the context of, let alone, you know, the apartment, the stuff doesn't matter. But um, the the dog was still here. So I had this constant, I have to come back and get my dog. And she was with a brilliant friend who took unbelievable care. And, and I was never worried about that. But in the context of the my heart being here and it being so utterly hard to be outside of the country at that point, um, because it is just what people here were going through is absolutely one shade of you know it's it's just in, it's hard for people to understand and, and you you because you, you were forbidden because you worked right the well they essentially government. said yeah you can go back into the country but we're not sure we're going to be able to keep you on staff because there is an evacuation order so you know you make a decision and i'm a single mom i've got a daughter in university and it's one of those okay do i quit my job do i wait a couple more weeks do i wait a couple more weeks and it ended up being like seven months of a couple more weeks before i was able to come back um, and, and at that time, you know, watching what's happening here from the outside was so hard because, and I, I really and truly understood this more when I came back for that short window last fall, because there, are, the, there is unity, there is community, everybody here is sort of standing together. And so even when the air alarms went off, actually, when I was here was last October 10th, when they hit, the missiles hit Shevchenko Park and in the intersection at the uh, uh, Volodymyrska. And I mean, when that hit, the windows all concussed and all of a sudden I realized, okay, when these things come down, you're not just hearing them, you are feeling them. Um, but there was no calm, there was no panic. 
everybody was calm. I went zipping down the stairs kind of thing. And I'm like, okay, what do we do? And the building guard and all the neighbors, everybody was downstairs. And they're just like, okay, well, just let's see what happens. <laughs> and and there was no panic. And, and I was the fact that you are there with other people sharing an experience and it's a shared calm and it's a it, it's a shared support it is a totally different thing from watching the headlines on your phone from 2000 kilometers away and so it's a very different experience about how how you you know are are the understanding of of what's happening here and not just what's happening but the ukrainian response and i i mean that on multiple levels i mean that you know military levels but also community level emotional level economic level you know that same day most people continued and went off to work and you know, it, it, people just it, it have gotten to the point of, of where it's so normal to move on. Here, it's very normal. From the outside, you think, oh, my God, everything has come to a screeching halt. Nothing is happening. And that's also why I think you see a lot of this disconnect of, you know, when some of the videos were going around and things on TikTok with soldiers dancing and things like that. And there's backlash and people are like, what are they doing? How can they do that? But it's part of being human, you know, and everybody finds ways to cope with different things in, in their own way. And, and again, going back to this idea of community and shared uh, experience, there are times when you have to laugh. There are times when you cry. There's times when you fight. There's times when you do all the things. But just because there, you know, this is this invasion has happened and it has truly impacted, you know, so badly a portion of the country, the rest of the country recognizes that that you know they need to keep the other pieces moving for for what's going on. How after the first time. Uh, you came back, so I think it was October 2022 was the first time yeah. you came back yeah. and then to I, Ukraine. Yeah, didn't and then, come back again until I, June of this year. Cause you, and you had to go back to the States. And yep. when, after you were here in the war time, in the time of the full-scale war, and then you went back to the States, why did you want to come back? I mean, you, you were here during a major- I never wanted to leave. <laughs> <laughs> this is my home. I, so literally, Kiev is my, my home. And it has been, um, I first moved here in 2007. I was here for two years. Then I went actually to Tbilisi, Georgia. I was there for four years doing business there. And then I'd come back to Ukraine uh, in 2015. So I, I consider Ukraine is my home. And, and I don't still have an apartment or anything in the United States. So when I am out there, I'm visiting. I, I don't have a home out there to go to. A lot of expats, a lot of foreigners here have, you know, a home still somewhere else. I don't. So th- th- that, why, why that did you make, why did you choose to make Ukraine your home in 2015? Oh, oh, uh, <laughs> boy. So it wasn't, um, it was a coming back. So, so um, I mentioned we had gone to Georgia and and just sort of a little side diversion. Um, so my my daughter, we had left the United States when she was three and a half, and so she had grown up in Ukrainian school. She had uh, gone to school in Georgia when she was in uh, fifth grade, she said, Mom, I want to know what it's like to be an American kid. I want to know what it's like to go to an English-speaking school, because she had gone to Ukrainian-speaking schools, a Georgian-speaking school, and then a French-speaking school. So she was never even taught in English. <laughs> and she said, Mama, I want to know what it's like to be an American kid. And I thought, you know what, that's a really fair and valid thing. You've been a great kid. We've schlepped you around for all of these years. You have tolerated my crazy business things to Ukraine and to Georgia and all of this. And so we went back to the U.S. Um, and within three months, I, I knew I had made a truly, truly terrible mistake. Um, it took her a little bit longer to realize it. She was, you know, she had, was adapting to a new school, that kind of thing. But after about the first six months in school, I was sort of tentatively feeling out the, so how are you feeling about being an American kid? And... Um, I mean, she's extremely adaptable, 
extremely amenable kid, but she said, yeah, I kind of miss Ukraine. And at that point, you know, so what's in this space, I don't know if you're catching these years, but, um, you know, that was Maidan. And then 2014 and the invasion and, you know, the takeover of Crimea, invasion and Donbass. So I was, again, watching all of this from afar, feeling like, here is this country I love and I feel deeply connected to, and I'm watching it from far away. And what were the things about Ukraine that you and also your daughter loved? Your daughter as, as a young girl and you yeah. as an adult. What, yeah. What were the things that you, what was it about Ukraine that you fell in love with? Uh, God, I, you know, I, I, I've had other people ask me this question. It's really hard because there's not a single thing. It's, it's a lot of intangibles, but what they do is sort of come together. And I'll, I'll just give you a couple examples. So one, I think there is such an incredible, strong sense of community here. And it's not absolutely everybody. But, but one of the things that makes Ukraine, from my perspective, extremely unique is there are incredibly strong bonds between people. And it, it, it's, it can be, you know, people that you know, people you work with, friends. But, but this country really survives and thrives because of the interpersonal bonds. And it's, it's not like a horizontal, a vertically oriented society that where Russia is and there's somebody at the top and there is single power. Here, things are much more diffused. And what it does is it really creates these this this situation where people depend upon each other they depend upon their friends they depend upon you know th their particular network if you can't solve a problem through you know the traditional mean or what you, you just make one phone call and you say hey i'm trying to find a doctor who's good in this or hey i need to find a shop that sells that and immediately you're going to have an answer so you always have people that you can go out and you rely on and I'll tell you a funny thing. Before we even moved to Ukraine, so um, my ex-husband is Ukrainian. We had met and got married in the United States, lived there for a number of years before we moved over here. We had a large community of Ukrainian friends in the United States. And I think I actually started to fall in love with Ukrainians back then, even before I came here, because it was a group of maybe eight or 10 families. Most of them had actually won green cards um, and were there based on that. But there was such a strong bond between families. And if somebody had you know, needed extra money to fix their car, everybody pulled their money and they had it. If somebody was sick and their kid need needed to be picked up from school, somebody else went to pick it up. So it was just, you could see these connections, even in that tiny little microcosm about how much people depended, relied, and supported each other. This is in New Jersey. This was in, in New Jersey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's great Ukrainian communities in New Jersey. Yeah. Yeah. So that that was actually because it was so different from, from what a lot of the United States was like, you know, at that point, that was uh, early 2000s. Um, and, you know, I, I think there has been sort of a drift in the United States in terms of uh, people are much more isolated. There was much less, even when I was a kid, so I'm going to date myself. I graduated in 1985, grew up in the 70s, early 80s, high school, 85. There was much stronger sense of community. There was much more sense of independence and freedom. I, I literally remember being a kid in the summers. My mom would give me my pool badge. She'd give me $2. She'd pack my lunch and she'd say, I don't want to see you again until five o'clock in the afternoon. And off I went into that. And I'd always go with a pack of kids. And, you know, it was safe for kids to go out. It was nobody was panicked or worried about things. My mother knew that if I did something stupid, somebody would tell her about it. And she also knew if I got hurt or something happened, somebody would call her. So it was, again, being part of this community. And by the time my daughter and, you know, we got married, my daughter was born in the early 2000s. 
that that was largely gone. And at that point, I had other people, other you know, colleagues, particularly who have kids. They didn't want to let their kids go three doors down the street by themselves. And all I could think was, I don't want my this. Is, I, I don't want my child growing up in fear of the world. I don't want her growing up not know, knowing how to deal with challenges. And so there was that part of it too. And then when we moved here, um, so we did, a, like I said, quick two years here. I went to Georgia. Uh, we went to Georgia for four years and then came back in 2015. And uh, my daughter was going into uh, sixth class then. She went to a Ukrainian school. She had spoken Ukrainian at home with her dad, but she'd never studied, never, uh, you know, formally done like education in the language. And it was a little rocky first couple weeks because in theory, you know, she could speak speak it, but she didn't have a lot of the cultural references and she didn't have a lot of the stories and things that kids normally grow up grew up with. And so th that was actually a fascinating kind of transition time. But her teacher was great. The other teachers in the school were really good once they understood that she was actually an American kid who spoke Ukrainian, <laughs> which kind of blew a lot of people's minds. <laughs> Um, but it, you know, it, in the context of the things that are a, a great about this, so education was definitely one of them. The education she got here in a Ukrainian public school in terms of math and science was spectacular. The, but again, it was more the, the, like I said, kind of the sense that kids can go out and be kids. And you know, she was out riding her bike all over Kiev when she was 13 years old with one of the, uh, the boys in her class. The seventh biggest city in Europe. Yeah. Yes, and yeah. I, I I'm. I didn't worry about it. I'm like, okay, have fun. <laughs> Stay out of the way of the cars. You know? <laughs> but but it it never occurred to me to say no. It didn't occur to me to be afraid. I mean, okay, yeah, you know, kids fall off bikes, things happen. But I was never afraid for her. And it was the same thing that I had grown up with. I knew that if something happened, somebody would call me. And I knew if she did something stupid, somebody would call me. And so there is a sense that you can let your kids be okay in 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 this space. And again. Kiev's a big city. I'm not talking about my neighborhood. I'm talking she was, you know, eight kilometers away in the city kind of thing. So so that is really important because it, it teaches kids how to be comfortable and how to be responsible for themselves, but how to be responsible for others. And it is something that you see here that 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 it's not just about you. It's how do you interact with the community. And so that is absolutely a, a part of is this, you know, we were, we've talked many times about this, especially in the time of the full-scale invasion. Yeah. Uh, we were recently at the IT Arena conference yeah. in Lviv, the tech conference. Yeah. And uh, you gave a, a great keynote in the Lviv Opera House uh, and uh, inspired many people. And uh, you, 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 you've spoken often about the Ukrainian sense of resourcefulness. Yeah. You, you know, and actually, you, I believe your statement was uh, Ukrainians are the most resourceful people on the planet. And maybe that comes from this upbringing, but why, I mean, obviously, I mean, you're willing to, to bring investments here in the time, yeah. of, in the time of war. What is this resourcefulness? So it, it, it's a carry through. So even so what I was talking about with her, but there are things of, of like the elements and the qualities that I'm talking about that make it good for kids actually is also what makes it fascinating and really interesting in the business context. And by that, what I mean is, is that people really are allowed to be independent and individuals. And, you know, if you want to talk about the concept of freedom, you know, the, the ability to make choices, the ability, the, the, the responsibility to have accountability, the ability to find different ways to solve problems, the, you know, all of these things that, that it's not just freedom of movement or the ability to vote. It's really so much more. And a lot of that is very much inherent in just this, the, the culture in Ukraine. 
and where you so professionally i i look at the business development and the investment sphere it is extraordinary to see on this level because what you have is a group of people you know a country of people who are actually quite well educated who have very strong interpersonal networks are really good at problem solving anybody who came out of the soviet union who had very limited resources they didn't go off to the walmart to go buy something when they needed it they either there was no walmart there's no shops that had what they needed they may not have had the resources so you have to figure out ways how to build it and so it's almost sort of built into how people approach things it's okay if i can't buy it i'll 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 find a way to make it or you know i'm not going to throw it away because maybe some piece of this can be used for something over there people don't waste things here I, i don't i don't know that you're aware of this, but people hang on to a lot of stuff and it's just for the, okay, maybe someday I'm going to need this piece. <laughs> but it's it's a it's a quality that I admire and I think it's a quality that's important right now. You know, there, there's all of these campaigns all over the world and go green and recycle, reuse. In Ukraine, they've been doing this for a very long time. Nobody <laughs> has to tell them to do this stuff. It's just basic common sense, people. But I appreciate that very much. <laughs> And then when you translate this even then into the context of business, of building a business and what does it take to be, you know, an entrepreneur and to be successful, you know, yes, you need the basic either tech skills or you you need the basic thing for whatever the project product or service you're going to sell. But the context of building a business and getting it out to clients and figuring out, you know, supply chain logistics, all of these other things, these these all come down to being able to problem solve on a constant daily basis. Once you, you know, have a lot of access to cash, you know, whatnot, you can sort of buy your way into some of these, but almost all of the really big businesses come from people being able to problem solve, problem solve, problem solve. And it is something that is is just sort of intrinsic to people's natures here to be extraordinary problem solvers and to want to be able to go out um, and to build new things. Well, I mean, I think if you look at <clears throat> what's happened in in the wartime here, the time of the full scale invasion, uh, look at drone development and drone technology, right? And uh, you've talked about this before too, that not just with drones, but yeah. how much the American and Western militaries, NATO militaries, can learn from Ukraine. Oh, absolutely. Because of what they've done with so little. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I, I I would actually say this is another part of just resourcefulness, and this is going to sound simplistic potentially, but Ukraine does not have the weapons, the amount and the types of weapons that it needs to really be able to push the Russians all the way back. They've been playing, you know, an extraordinarily good defensive game. They've already reclaimed 50% of the territory that had been taken. But but they have been doing it largely on, you know, what was provided. Things have not always been provided on the timelines. The amounts have not always been the same. And so they have had to be resourceful to fill the gaps. And one of the things that they have done just, I think, to the dismay of a lot of the Western armies because, you know, in the context of what drone warfare and what they have been using drones for and how they have used drones against kind of the very big traditional artillery and equipment, it it is completely changed the calculus of what people have to be thinking about. And the, you know, the Ukrainians are not just, it's not one drone and done. They are constantly innovating and putting things out in the field and seeing what works and trying to, not just trying, but but finding ways to not just, you know, you enhance, increase the optics, the navigation, the response to electronic warfare, you know, all of the different pieces that go into having something that's flying through the air. And I'm not even talking about the body of, of you know, the particular unarmed vehicle. So all of these things are constantly being innovated. And, and 
um, I guess it was about three weeks ago, I was at a conference in Warsaw. Um, there were a lot of uh, uh, Western companies who were there who have done various um, unarmed, uh, unmanned uh, aerial vehicles. And you could, some of the conversations, you know, you could hear that even what was working three months ago, all of a sudden was not working because the Russians had figured out how to track something or to jam something. So the Ukrainians went back and they like they innovated again, they pivoted again and they came up with something new and they put it out in the field. And so it's almost like people, if you are on the outside right now, you actually just can't keep up with the, the innovation that's going on. Now, from my perspective as a, an investor in business development, the long game obviously is commercialization, you know, that kind of thing you know, helping the Ukrainian companies that are doing some of these things, being able to sell their their products or services and not even just hold drones, but just like the optics and the navigation systems and some of these other things that they're doing. But what is really important right now is what are these products doing out in the in the East, being able to help the Ukrainians um, in, in that sense. So well, you, you spoke about the consternation of some Western defense companies. Yeah. Why? <laughs> I mean, is why? <laughs> because they're well, I think the calculus for, for of, of what money? I think the calculus of what everybody assumed has changed dramatically, and there are absolutely instances of Western products that everybody had thought was the thing, and then they bring them in country and they test them in real life situations, and they last for four minutes, and then that's the end of it, and and so. You know, a lot of these things had been developed uh, and and preliminarily tested in very pristine environments. It it was not one full of, you know, jamming and other things flying and projectiles and countermeasures and all of these things. And Ukraine is is unfortunately an extraordinary testing ground right now for some of these weapons. And and again, Ukraine is not looking at it as a testing ground. They are looking at it as how do we how how do we better defend ourselves? How do we better push the Russians back? But a byproduct of that is 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 that um, you know a lot of the products and assumptions that I think had been out there before um, are being challenged, and people are trying to figure out how to to respond to that. I, I want to talk certainly more about the innovation, but I think we also need to touch on uh, one of the words that. From my perspective, Russian propaganda has attached to Ukraine corruption. Yeah. yeah. Uh, which, uh, you know, we don't talk about Russian corruption or Western corruption. That's because so much... it's so institutionalized. There's no way to pull it out of the state. It's, it is the state. Yeah, so much attention is focused on this. And without actually going into, you know, so often we don't, I don't think anyone really knows the details of this. Uh, not, some people do. You're one of those people who does. I remember when I first came here in 2018, uh, on, that, on that trip, I was traveling around the world and we had a great group of Americans here, Americans who worked for the embassy and others. And uh, I, none of them were here during the time of the full-scale invasion. Uh, but it was it was just great solidarity. I remember there was a um, a wedding on an island in the Dnipro River during the pandemic. That was great. Uh, that was a great and, wedding. Uh, Thanks, Andrew. Twenty yeah, twenty <laughs> twenty right. And uh, uh, and American friend marrying a Ukrainian uh, a woman. And um, and at that wedding, there were so many of the key people working for Ukrainian yeah. freedom, working to fight the Russian corruption uh, that, that that from 2014, from the Revolution of Dignity, when yeah. people began to rise up against that. Yep. And we were all on this island uh, in the Dnipro River at, at a wedding in the pandemic when most things were shut down around the world, but here it was fairly open and free m- much of the time. Yep. And I remember as the night went on a bit and people had some drinks, 
everyone there, there was a dark cloud, even in 2020 mm-hmm. and back to 2018. Everyone, it was very smart people. I mean, there are people from Belgium, uh, from the UK, from the US, Ukrainians, yeah. top government people, top international NGO people. Everyone felt that this Russian invasion was going to happen. Do you yeah. remember that? Yeah. That, yeah. yeah, that was before they were lined up on the border. I mean, we, well before, yeah. yeah. And, and But you knew it because you knew... You knew what was at stake from the Revolution of Dignity in 2014. Right. And actually you, after that revolution, and I, w- I would love to hear your description of what that revolution meant, uh, but the context for those watching is after that you came and you were part of the the, 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 the young government after the revolution. And you know, there's so many crazy conspiracy theories in America that some one lady at the State Department created the revolution, uh, but it was a, it was a chance... To, to to give the power back to the people. Uh, there was a woman, Natalie Uresko, born in Chicago, uh, who became Ukraine's finance minister. Yep. Uh, and you were working closely with her. It wasn't right? it wasn't Natalie. I came in a little bit after her, but mm-hmm. I was working in the Ministry of Finance after she had left. But it was under Oksana Markarova, who had worked under Natalie. So I came in right after her. After, but yes. So she started the reforms. And then, yeah. so how would you, so you were there, you were there, and this is 2015, uh, oh my like God. a high level of government. You just gave Ukraine. me like a huge chunk of time to cover here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But there's so much to happen. So maybe the be- the simple way to start it is is what what was the revolution of dignity? Why is, do you find that inspiring? What does it mean? And you know, was it one person in the State Department that created this revolution? No, that I can pretty clearly tell you. So it didn't start out as a revolution. It started out as a group of Ukrainian students who were really unhappy with the Yanukovych government's decision to turn their back on uh, a European agreement that they had that they had been talking about and that they had promised when they had come, you know, during the 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 presidential election prior. And it was a very clear and distinct shift. I think a lot of people saw it as to a clear Russian alignment. The the I mean, if you go back and look at the Yanukovych time, I mean, he essentially and his family had essentially modeled themselves over largely how Russia was run. It was essentially a mafia state. There were thousands of businesses that were taken over that had to pay cover. I I can literally probably list 60 or 70 companies I knew during, you know, that time frame. It was it it, it started to get pretty bad in about 2010. Up until 2013, um, companies who had been run by expats who just couldn't stand the pressure from the government in terms of payments, threats, all of these things. And they just decided it was time to close up shop and head out of town. So there had been this pressure building uh, under that administration in terms of it just moving more and more towards what essentially was the Russian model of mafia state. And I think, you know, what had happened in, in it was actually 2013 when it started, um, it, it, it was not anticipated to be a revolution. It was people who went out to protest and to say, really, this we are here. We want the Western orientation. We want the alignment with the European Association, the European Union. That is the direction where we as Ukrainians think we want to, you know, need to be going where we want to be going. And then if you remember, it was very heavy-handed police response. They were students. Police came in, uh, beat badly the students. And what happened the next morning, it was it was another one of these things. And that I will just say this very much talks back to people are aware of the greater community and the greater, con- you know, the connections between people. The streets were just flooded with people who came to protest the way the students were. 
you know, uh, had, had been traded. And then when there was a heavy presence back from that, more people came. And so it was something that that's largely snowballed. But it very quickly became clear, I think, for a lot of people that that it was a point to sort of just make a stand and say, enough. What, what, we, we are not going the way that the Russian people have quietly and meekly accepted their fate under that administration and that they, they wanted to create a path for themselves that was very distinctly Ukrainian and that was uh, guided by the values you know, revolution of dignity. Dignity is a, is is a value. It in in the context of how do you want to be treated as a citizen of your state? What are the things that matter? What are the things that are important? And if you go back, it's not just sort of what they talked about, but it was what they did. You know, um, Winter on Fire is a great documentary about, and it's filmed on Netflix about about how people took care of each other. I mean, people all, all along Krasatek and Maidan were opening their apartments. They let people come in to take showers, to sleep, to make phone calls, to recharge phones. People brought food out to the people who were camped out, you know, overnight. There was incredible, again, community support. And it's, it's everybody is fine when they, when they, you know, when there's not crisis, whatever, all the Ukrainians are happy with the lives they lead and they don't really spend a lot of time bothering each other, doing other things. But when there is a time of crisis, when the country needs together, it is, that's exactly what happens. And and, and so that, that was sort of, you know, one piece of it. And then again, uh, even, you know, fast forward several months. Well, sorry. Back to the 2014 yeah. real quick, because yeah. it's also astounding to me I, as the revolution became more successful, more and, and the secret police were disbanded, yeah. or they fled, well, they uh, fled. to yeah. Russia and were hiding somewhere. Yeah. Uh, there was no looting. The, no, 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 no. There was, was nothing like that. They, yeah. they people went out and cleaned up the streets, you know. At night. But but that is the that is very much the character and the nature is of of how people approach things. Just because you are out protesting does not give you the right to you know leave your litter on the side of the road. Now it's not that everybody was picking up the garbage, but it, it again it's this it's this awareness that yes you are an individual and yes you know you you want and your own particular freedom and ability to make decisions for you and your family. But at the same time, you are not isolated. You are part of a bigger community and you have responsibility to that bigger community. Just just as a quick parallel, one of the things that was so hard watching what happened in the United States during COVID versus here was these crazy arguments that people had between my rights as an individual versus you know the greater community's rights. I, I had trouble even understanding some of those those conversations. Here, it's not even a question because you you are constantly finding a balance between what is right for you and what's right for the greater good. And it's there's no static point that exists. Everything is always a negotiation. But you live in this community. You are part of it. And I don't just mean Kiev. I mean whoever you are, wherever you are. You you can't exist in a bubble. You exist as part of something bigger. Is and, that negotiate because I, I feel so often it's my time working at Fox News and other places like that. Like I, th- I feel like everything in America is an argument. <laughs> okay, an argument say, instead of a negotiation. <laughs> I think there's a big there's a big difference there, here because I yeah. here I think you were one of the I think you described you were the first one that gave me this idea. But in Ukraine, there's always a dance between the people and the authorities. Yeah, in a way, and mm-hmm. uh, but it's uh, but also among people. And this is it. This negotiating is it done in a different spirit than than we have? Oh, oh yeah, it's not antagonistic. It's not antagonistic. I mean, really, it's not. You start from the place that I am right and you are wrong. It's a, it's, it's a, this, you know, this is my stance. This is your stance. We 
we all live and or work together there you know you have to find ways as humans to to collaborate otherwise you sort of end up with what we have in the United States now, you know, a, a several hundred million people who are all these tiny little islands who feel alienated and alone and disconnected from everybody, distrustful of everybody else. It 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 is something in a society where you actually have to work to be able to foster what what is going on around you. You can't just take these these individual stances and I am right, you are wrong, because half the time it's a matter of opinion. Here's another thing that I, that makes me crazy is people have stopped being able to differentiate between opinion and fact. And just because a thought is in your head, and this is true for every human on the planet, just because you think it does not make it true. And so people have lost the ability to step back and to even be able to analyze these kind of things. And, and I just, I don't see that as much here. I just don't. And and certainly in times of crisis, when there is a need for community solidarity, you know, all bets are off. People, you know, whatever you as an individual, your need is, it absolutely, it, it is secondary compared to what is the larger community need. When I remember, I mean, from 2018, before the Russian big invasion in 2022, I'd heard all these stories in Maidan. And I, I, I mean, I believed it. I saw this as a lovely society, but... You know, in some ways, it sounds a bit mythological. Oh, everyone coming together, you know, in this in this lovely way. And then when I saw the reactions of the people here, the first days, the first the first hours, days, weeks, and months of the full scale invasion, I saw the Maidan. No, I saw. Yeah, no, absolutely. You're also missing a really important one. I'm going to give you another piece in there. It was so in 2000. So after Maidan, the Russians had gone into Crimea, the little green men, and just kind of took it and and that was that but what started to happen in the Donbass area when they started you know there were the troops without the insignias kind of thing and the separatists that were all absolute you know armed fomented incited by you know Russian troops that had come in it was not particularly the Ukrainian army which at this point I might be wrong I want to say the number was only like I don't want to say it because I'm going to be wrong. But the Ukrainian army was not at its strongest point. So a few then. months after the revolution. A, a few months after the revolution. And then when the first invasion in, in out in uh, Donetsk and Luhansk started, th there was not a strong standing Ukrainian army at that point because it had been systematically undercut, underfunded, essentially, you know, corrupted under the Yanukovych management, which is, again, exactly what they do up in Russia. And you're seeing some of the results of that here. And one of the reasons why the Ukrainians have, have actually been been um, fortunate in some ways. But a lot of the people who went out to the front in the east, th they were not army. They were regular Ukrainians, but they saw that there was this incursion. And again, nobody quite knew what was happening. But there was a lot of Ukrainians who just grabbed their own guns, went out east, particularly from the west, and went out. And, and so that was like this other point of solidarity where people are not waiting for some god in the sky or some you know stronger than thou president to come in and say this is what you must do they saw what needed to be done for you know the the strength of the country and they just go they did it so it was the orange revolution it was 2004 in 2004 mm -hmm. it was it was maidan starting 2013 into 2014 it was the response to the first russian invasion in 2014 and then you just saw it in spades uh, in 2022 when people were out lining up to sign up to volunteer tech guys bakers truck drivers doctors I mean, there, there were lines where they were turning people away in the beginning. So, well, And that was part, I mean, I had been to the city of Kharkiv, 30 miles or so yeah. from Russia, before the full-scale invasion. 
And there I heard from people exactly the story you're saying about what happened in those in, in 2014 yeah. when Washington and London and Berlin and Paris refused to give Ukraine the weapons they needed yeah. to stop a, a much a much weaker Attack. Russia yeah. from taking this territory. Yeah. And it, the people defended Kharkiv for like maybe 24 hours was in Russian hands. I know. And the people yeah. rose up. And that's why Absolutely. I said there's no way now after eight years right. after the revolution of society developing well, you, that, that, yeah. that this could happen. Yeah. No, the Ukrainians... It were were very 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 clear eyed and you know I, I think everybody always hoped it would not happen but in in the back of the brain it's always a it, it could but I think after two thousand fourteen everybody was pretty clear eyed that they knew that at some point something was going to happen just because of the crazy thinking that goes on up in Moscow and twenty fourteen gave I mean after centuries of oppression uh, by Moscow uh, gave the Ukrainians an opportunity to to really. What would you say? Did, 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 yeah, did, did it give an opportunity no, to... I think to... it was a defining moment. I, I, I don't know that it gave an opportunity. I mean, they had to respond. But I think I, I think it's one of those things, you know, if, if you look at history, there's always pivotal moments. And sometimes you don't see them when they're happening, but you see them in hindsight. And it was the same as, you know, the Russian warship go yourself you know that's just a couple of guys down on an island but holy cow that like became a rallying cry but but it, w what i'm saying is there's certain points or certain events that really like make you snap into focus and say what really matters and strip away all of the other stuff all the fluff all of whatever minor disagreements anything anything what really matters and and i think that that actually particularly for the ukrainian army they really understood as of 2014 that that things had to change and that you know th there was a lot of western support in terms of training in terms of additional um you know h helping build out the military here you know there have been a lot of of that's been you know how many years was that eight years six eight years yeah. right of really sort of strengthening the ukrainian army and and um so so that helped tremendously but at the end of the day it's it's ukrainians who are out there the i mean it's an extraordinary and it's, i think it shows the world that we can have agency so many people are frustrated you, you must have agency that's the only thing you can do otherwise otherwise you end give up, up the Russia. game <laughs> yeah you, and otherwise you end up with tyrannical regimes yeah. like moscow and others right now yeah. who who, who re wreak havoc upon the world. Yeah. And cause had Ukrainians not had that revolution, Russia would control this, the largest oh. country totally within Europe. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's scary to imagine. And and had that revolution of dignity not happened, had Ukrainians not stood in the streets, even in the face of the bullets. It's interesting. Uh, I hadn't thought of it that way. Yeah. Would, would there be missiles hitting this country? Millions of dollars worth of Russian missiles uh, hitting the country every week? No, there'd be no need. And that shows you how the corrupt regime was so threatened by the people taking power back that they're yes. now eight years or nine years later sending millions of dollars worth of missiles and drones to destroy these people, Yeah, to try to destroy them. No, it's about, you're absolutely right. It's about the agency that, that Ukrainians feel for themselves and, and the country. I think the other piece is that, that actually Ukrainians have been 
quite successful in moving the country along, again, I'm going to go back to business a little bit, economically. And, you know, there has been tremendous development. And if you, you know, look at the balance of the economies between Ukraine and Russia and where uh, economic development comes from and things like that, you know, it's very stark. In Russia, it is all the oligarch-controlled oil, gas, you know, it's, it's very narrow silos of where the money actually is sort of generated, weaponry. In Ukraine, you have got diversity. And, you know, yes, it is definitely the metals and, and things like that that had traditionally been part of the country. Same with ag, just it is literally the, they have the natural resources to be very successful in some of these very big uh, industries. But, you know, since since 2014, one of the great things in, that is fascinating and that I love about the tech sector and why actually I'm very bullish on the tech sector. Since 2010, this country, the tech sector has grown um, at almost a 20% compound annual growth rate for since 2010 up until 2020, actually it was into 2022. There is enormous growth and it is it is a sector that, you know, kind of just, it was ground up. It is not top down imposed controlled kind of thing. The, the, the tech sector is is like the best example for me of the entrepreneurism, the spirit, the taking what they have, meaning great education, problem solving ability, don't take things at face value, fig- seeing where there's problems, you know, coming in to fill it. The tech sector embodies all of that. And and it they just the, the, the Ukrainian um well, the tech sector here really has all of the components for just and knock your socks off uh, kind of ecosystem. And it's just so much fun. I, I feel very um, grateful, actually, that I have been able to be here and to watch this thing grow and um, to, to sort of have a ringside seat for, for watching what, what has been built here. And I, I remember arguments in 2017, and there's like all this hand-wringing in the community that we've done so much. There's so many good companies, but we don't have any tech unicorn. You know, there's no Ukrainian unicorns. A unicorn is a company that has a billion dollar valuation. And and there was literally like agita over there's no Ukrainian unicorns. Well, 2018, the first one came. We're now, I think, um, between actually 18 and 22, I think we're now at six companies that have hit it. Uh, actually, two more had hit it and have dropped back down a little bit. So eight unicorns in a pretty small period of time, two years of which was COVID, two years of which was war. And They're if you have eight okay. unicorns, you have hundreds of other yeah. Ventures that are successful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, oh, absolutely. That don't come close to that. I mean, there's, and there's just, exactly, there's a raft of them that are out there below that. Sorry, this is kind of like a stupid tech thing where everybody just focuses on really big numbers. I have to say, I think it's a guy thing. But but there's a lot of really good companies in the, you know, below that, that, are that sector as well. Absolutely. It's amazing. And so, uh, Deborah Fairlam, you have your new venture, Green Green Flag. Yep. And green because go. I mean, this is you're saying yeah. we're not. You're not waiting till not. till the day of victory. There's no. already since all these things are victory that's already happening right yeah. now. What is your? I mean, you, you've given it really, but what 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 is your pitch? What, what kind of what kind of investors do you want to bring to Ukraine? What is the profile of the yeah. person who should be here now? Um, okay, so the way a venture capital fund works is actually what we do is we go out in what's called limited partners. So we get other partners who invest in our fund. We pool all the money. We're going to be we're, it'll be a twenty million dollar fund. And then what we do is using our knowledge of the ecosystem of the companies, understanding where the really good 
companies are, the ones that we think have great growth potential, then we invest in those companies. Some of them we will invest in are going to be pretty small, um, maybe a $100,000 check that gets them you know, to a certain point of being able to grow. If we if they have already got some gra- growth and traction and they just need a little bit more to maybe enter a new market, maybe they're going into the European market, they're entering the U.S. market, we'll, we'll write some higher checks. We're not going to – $20 million is not a huge fund. We probably will only invest in, say, 12 to 15 companies. So we're just a little drip in the market. But in the context of it, us being uh, both m- – Myself and Justin, my my co-founder, Justin um, Zeef. Right? Justin Zeef. Yep. Um, he is also an American. So we are a, an American VC fund. Sole purpose is to invest in Ukrainian technologies. Um, I am here on the ground. He is there in in the U.S. And so we kind of cover both sides of of what a VC fund does. Um, but in the context of seeing opportunity, we absolutely see opportunity. And in fact, I see opportunity, you know, that even falls outside the periphery of the things that we're going to be investing in. And so I'm constantly making phone calls to other people and saying, hey, there's a really cool company. We're not investing in that. You know, it's outside of our thesis, but you should take a look at it. So there's a lot of things like that going on. The ecosystem here definitely needs more uh, funding at this point. You know, the the whole country is suffering, not suffering, would benefit greatly from a uh, an influx of of uh, investment. There's different kinds of investment. Tech investment, quite frankly, especially in a wartime situation, is a little bit less risky than certain other ones because missiles can't destroy a tech company. You know, people go to bomb shelters. Most of the data is cloud storage. So it's not like you you are sort of have the same vulnerabilities as if you're building a new automobile manufacturing plant. And that, does the war make these companies better, sharper? Well, to, to the point that I was saying, if you just look at kind of the innovation cycle uh, that's happening in Ukraine right now, just particularly in the drone space, you know, if, if you look at traditional defense, you know, innovation cycles, it can take months and years for development, testing, these things that literally take years for for certain types of of um, uh, military uh, equipment is happening in weeks and months here. So, and and it's not by some magic fairy wand. It's because the Ukrainians are out there innovating as fast as they can, but it is being carried through everywhere. So. Yes, I, I, a huge part of what's happening here and why the Ukrainians are, you know, why all of this is, is very interesting is because the pace of innovation is spectacular. I used to refer to Ukraine as the edge of the free world, but now, especially when I'm in the East, it's, it's the, the leading edge. <laughs> the leading edge, the, the capital of the free world, the center of it, uh, be, because uh, out of necessity, but also desire to, to hold on to this freedom and, and to make it into something great. Uh, and there was a story you told me as we close here uh, that to me was uh, illustrative of a lot of the misconceptions in the West about Ukraine. Uh, and I'm always asking people you know, who don't support Ukraine or are skeptical why. And I remember there was an investor from Texas that I, I connected to you, uh, a friend of a friend, and, um, yeah. and he called you and uh, wanted to invest in Ukraine. And, and, uh, but he said he was concerned about corruption. 
Yeah. And you reassured him. How? I did. I, I, I explained. I said, well, corruption is a very big word. It encompasses a lot of things. Let me break it down to you, kind of the different pieces of what it means, where you'd likely to be, in, you know, where you might encounter it, this, that, and the other thing, and walked him kind of through the whole spectrum of things. And I said, you know, yes, there's things, things are still working on. There's still issues with judges and making sure the courts are clean. But I said, for the most part, they are. They have made huge strides, and what's happening now is they're holding people accountable. They're bringing people up on corruption charges that they never before did. So, so they're bringing it out into the light. All of these are incredibly important steps in moving forward. And he said, "Okay, all right, then, good, good, good." Then we proceeded to talk about some of the stuff that he that he was interested. In. And then he asked me, "Well, you know, because I was telling him wh where can you access?" He, he was looking for big investments, like foreign direct investment. He wanted factories and things like that. And I said, "Well, this is you know places you can go, lists you can get." And he said, "Well, can I just call somebody and you know?" get access to some of the lists of that aren't public and maybe pay a little bit more. And I kind of burst out laughing and I'm like, okay, you just asked me to be corrupt. <laughs> you know, I said, do you understand that this thought, that this attitude that you can buy your way into something that is, you know, out there for public procurement in a way that is transparent, internationally re recognized, everything like this, you're asking me to give you a backdoor in. And I, I said, and he didn't even sort of recognize it at that. And, and I said, what you have just done is like the biggest nightmare for most Ukrainians that somebody with a lot of money can come in and do a side deal and get access to something. And he said, I didn't really think of it that way. And, and I, without meaning to besmirch him, he really didn't think of it that way. But, but it, it was such a, a, it's such an important thing to understand about corruption. And, you know, in the United States, we have a very big lobbying industry. And a lot of people think that's kind of just institutionalized corruption, because what it is, it's about getting access, you know, supporting campaigns. If you look favorably at this, it's maybe not exact pay for play, but it really skirts lines sometimes. Also, I come from New Jersey. New Jersey was home of <laughs> half the mafia families in the United States. So I can tell you there's corruption there too. There's all kinds of corruption. Nobody is without corruption. But but the thing about about Ukraine is is that they are really serious about tackling it, especially on the on the large level where it impacts business. The second thing is is people don't tolerate it. They call it out. And that is also incredibly powerful. Civil society and the voice that is here really makes a difference. There's a small blip because people say corruption. They point it out and everybody's like, oh, corruption, corruption. And that's all anybody talks about for two days in social media. Then it dies down. But it's important. And and the only thing I would wish is, is that when people talk about corruption, to be specific, what is it you're talking about? Was somebody paid off? Did somebody get access to a deal that should have been publicly done through you know, open bid? It didn't. Are you talking about some low-level person at the, you know, Department of Motor Vehicles that said, hey, if you give me 200 grivnia, I'll get you your paperwork 10, you know, 20 minutes faster. There's all of these different levels. And it's important to understand what corruption, when somebody just says corruption is a blanket statement, because it's really not accurate. And it, it, it puts a shroud on actually what is happening and the fact that Ukraine is moving forward. And a lot of people call it out. So... Yeah, I mean, and I, I mean, I covered. I was a journalist in New York State, and I saw, and I lived in Louisiana. I saw. <laughs> oh, hello. Corruption. Yeah. And so we have this, uh, you know, and I think this is one of the the accomplishments so far of Russian propaganda is just attaching this word. Right. It's just a word. Yeah, it's just a word, and and no one, and it's the the story that we just shared is an example that people use that word, but they don't know what it means, and exactly. Uh, in some ways, corruption because the the Soviet era when people had to learn how to survive corruption was democratic like yeah. your little guy can still 
survive. It's not just the rich guy, a uh, powerful guy, but but there is such a especially since 2014, there's been, uh, and now in the wartime, uh, Ukrainska Pravda has done investigations and, and that exactly. has led to changes in the government. Exactly. Uh, there's such, uh, there, 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 there's so much sunshine on corruption and corrupt means decay. And, you know, no nation that was corrupt, I don't I don't see how that could, you could have survived yeah. uh, those first weeks of Russian missile yeah. attacks and yeah. everything. Just one last thing. Also, every country is corrupt. You know, that's something else I, 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 I a lot of people here think that that there's like this magical land somewhere that there's no corruption. I'm like, oh no, it's everywhere. And and I think that that is one thing that I wish that Ukrainians would understand is how much actually they have done and are are doing to be able to address it, to bring it to you know through the press, through civil society, all of these different things. Um, but that is also not just Ukraine. This is not an affliction of Ukraine and that, that, that they have done, somehow done something wrong. You know, look at Netanyahu, look at, you know, Sarkozy, look at, you know, these are huge leaders who have all been brought up on corruption charges, let alone what's happening in the U.S. So, you know, there's all of these different pieces. And, and I it's not perfect. But if you understand what you're dealing with, you understand, you know, that the first rule is when you come here and you do business, you never, ever, 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 ever pay outside the system because you can do anything in business here legally within the system all of these things without paying a bribe you can you may be asked along the way the minute you do it you have like been branded as a sucker will pay and they'll you know but if you just stick to the line and do it within the narrow you can absolutely run your business without you know without having to pay so here you are with green flag ventures yeah. and and here even under threat of missiles and drones, which I by know. the way, though, because of what, and I always want to keep reminding people this every chance I get, because of what Ukraine has done to Russia's Black Sea fleet, and we've gone now I two know. months without a major missile yeah. strike, nationwide strike, yeah. cannot be forgotten. No, uh, absolutely. As Ukraine's getting stronger. kicked ass so, uh, down there. Uh, and we'll have information in the description about how uh, people can follow uh, you work. You have a new newsletter as well. For yeah, Green- we actually on LinkedIn, mm-hmm. uh, Green Flag Ventures. Uh, you can follow us on LinkedIn. The newsletter is up there, and we'll be publishing monthly. And it's not just about what we're doing, but we'll, we'll just include little pieces about news about the tech ecosystem, some of the companies that are really interesting. Just part of what we want to do is we just want to share information about what is happening here, because obviously we are really psyched about it and really think there's good opportunities but it it the more people we can get uh, engaged and to understand really the how dynamic and exciting things are here the better it is you know for everybody it's called the standard your newsletter right <laughs> yeah okay great uh green flag ventures deborah fairland american do we say expat american uh, ukrainian american i'm Amer- ukrainian american yeah now <laughs> yeah, yeah. An, an american who chose uh to to live here in ukraine even and especially in the time of war. And uh, so please check out the description to follow Deborah's work. And uh, this has been Joe Lindsley with our Land of the Free podcast here in the studios of Ukrainska Pravda, Ukrainian Truth in Kyiv. You can learn more about our work at ukrainianfreedomnews.com. Truth to the world, supplies to Ukraine. Deborah, duzhe diakuyu. Duzhe diakuyu. From Kyiv. Thank you.